It's Borges, the other one that things happen to. I walk through Buenos Aires and I pause, mechanically now, perhaps, to gaze at the arch of an entryway and its inner door. News of Borges reaches me by mail, or I see his name on a list of academics or in some biographical dictionary. My taste runs to hourglasses, maps, 17th century type apologies, the taste of coffee, and the prose of Robert Louis Stevenson. Borges shares those preferences, but in a vain sort of way that turns them into the accoutrements of an actor. It would be an exaggeration to say that our relationship is hostile. I live, I allow myself to live, so that Borges can spin out his literature, and that literature is my justification. I willingly admit that he has written a number sound pages, but those pages will not save me. Perhaps the good in them no longer belongs to any individual, not even to that other man, but rather to language itself, or tradition. Beyond that, I am doomed, utterly and inevitably, to oblivion, and fleeting moments will be all of me that survives in that other man. Little by little, I've been turning everything over to him, though I know the perverse way he has of distorting and magnifying everything. Spinoza believed that all things were to go on being what they are. Stone wishes eternally to be stone, and tiger to be tiger. I shall endure as Borges, not in myself, if indeed I am anybody at all. But I recognize myself less in his books than many others, or in the tedious strumming of a guitar. Years ago, I tried to free myself from him and I moved on from my, the mythologies of the slums and the outskirts of the city to games with time and infinity. But those games belong to Borges now, and I have to think up other things. So my life is a point-counterpoint, a kind of fugue, and a falling away, and everything winds up being lost to me, and everything falls into oblivion, or into the hands of the other man. I am not sure which of us it is that's writing this page. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Groundhog Day again, February 2nd, 2019, and in sync with those forking paths... This is the winter installment of the 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club. Today I'm joined by book club regulars Noor, Dennis, SJ, and Lacey to discuss fictions by Jorge Luis Borges. Fictions is the most popular collection of short stories by Argentine writer and poet Jorge Luis Borges, produced between 1941 and 56. The English translation of fictions was published in 1962, the same year as Labyrinths, a separate compilation of Borges' translated works. The two volumes lifted Borges to worldwide literary fame in the 1960s and consist of short stories interconnected by common themes, including Labyrinths, 
dreams, philosophy, libraries, mirrors, fictional writers, and mythology. Borges' works have contributed to philosophical literature and fantasy and have been considered by some critics to mark the beginning of the magic realist movement of the 20th century Latin America lit literature. On page 242 of the History of the World War, Seidel Hart tells us of an Allied offensive that had been planned July 24, 1916, but had to be put off until the morning of July 29th. Torrential rains, notes Captain Lydell, were the cause of that delay. This statement, which follows, dictated, reread, and signed by Dr. Yutsun, throws unexpected light on the case. The first two pages of this statement are missing. Hello, everyone. How are you guys doing? Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Good. Yeah. Very good. So Dennis was... <laughs> Hi, Lacey. Lacey. Hey, Lacey. <laughs> Hi. I didn't know if you were going to hear me because I couldn't find my, my headphones. So it's working? Yes. I'm good? You're cool. Good. Thanks. Hi, guys. Hey. Good to hear hey. from you. Dennis was saying that he dug in... But he couldn't remember any of the details. And so, like, I find that with these stories, there are particular elements. Like, but then there's also, like, these eternal themes. And that's what I take away. And then I don't remember any of the particularities of any of the stories. Um, yeah, I think I'd, I'd agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> So who well, read who read what? Oh, I know I probably it, read everything. You you did, didn't you? <laughs> I, I read I read the whole collected fictions. Nice. Wow. Um, Wonderful. I, I I haven't read any of his uh, nonfiction stuff, but I, I I think I have in the past sometime because I remember I remember reading some of his. I thought they were stories. But they're not in this book, so um, they must be in his nonfiction stuff, which is, which means that he, there's no there's no real distinction between nonfiction and fiction for him. It it's seems hard. like when I was doing a little bit of research on him, that was the thing where this this thing that he latched onto with fictions is kind of like an encompassing thing that is like essay and memoir, and it's like. It's his whole life that's kind of contributing to the the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your description at the beginning is kind of like a description of a dream. And I think maybe that's his point about f fictions is like the, that, that line between reality and a dream. Like, it sounded like a dream you were describing. <laughs> Yeah, that was a good one to to start in on too. That's not uh, what is. Are you talking about the other? The, that's called the other Borges. Yeah, Bor yeah. No, it's called Borges and I. Oh, Borges and I. So, okay, and there there is one called the other Borges, isn't there? Or quite likely. <laughs> Some of the titles have are the same story, but the titles are different in different listings, like the. Lottery of Babylon or Babylon Lottery. I've seen it referred to with that word order switched in the English. Now that one in particular, I think, reminded me of like a Philip K. Dick story. There was something Dickian about that one. The 
the no wait maybe it was the the i was confusing the the lottery and the library because i think they're yeah both, that's what i thought you meant the, yeah. they're both set in, in in babylon maybe yeah the yeah the lottery in babylon the library of babel there it is yeah well, I think that's a, I mean, just to stay on the idea of some broader points here, I mean, this, uh, that's one thing when I read even the first story in the collection of Ficcioni's, and that's not one that I really focused on deeply because there was only some three of them that overlapped in Ficcioni's and the collected stories. But after reading that first story, I mean, my mind was blown instantly. I, I feel like uh, I won't be the same person in many ways. And then my next, or one of my next thoughts was, this is Philip K. Dick before Dick even wrote a word. I mean, these stories were written, and it, they're almost more Dickian than Dick in a way, because of how compressed the ideas are and how efficiently they convey the these same themes. And these mm. are themes like you know split realities, um, people be people being more than one person simultaneously, yeah. the future being the same as the past, being able to you know write the future, write the past. The kind of I like his focus, which I think is different than Dick. And he goes way more into the idea of this kind of language games, you might want to call it, or how like the complexity of language and meaning and how um, oh, the other thing about Dick would be infinities, these kind of infinite realities. So any, anyhow, I just wanted to, to throw that out there at the beginning. It's just very Dickian. And then the second thing we were talking about before, I think this might even it's before his time. But I think these stories are even before the present time, like they're mm -hmm. pre 21st century. I don't think we've still fully come into to what these stories kind of portend or you know promise in, in many ways. Um, SJ, you said it was the first story in the in the fictione, so the Talon Akbar Orbis Tertius that one. Yes. So what what happened when you read it, or what? How so did... it, it's just I read it, and 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 he goes into this. Um, the main thing that really blew my mind was how. Um, words i mean it, it's a story and i, and I can't recall the particulars because again it wasn't one of the ones that i went back and really um i've got notes in a few of these because i figured we'd be talking about them but that this idea was that 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 um like there was a new language i believe in that story where um um nouns didn't refer to anything oh yeah or it was wow right. it, it was, was a story was, where you uh, had all these different types of languages and when I was uh, finished downloading the, these concepts that he posited in this story, it just made me appreciate like my own use of language and how like what, when we say words that we can refer to, to other words and how language changes through slang and how like fag meaning a cigarette can mean something else, you know, as a slur in a different context. That's just one example. I mean, sorry if that's an offensive, offensive example, but do you see what I'm saying? This kind of malleability and almost inf infinity of language. We can create our own languages, you know, well, our in, own code. In that story, mm. wasn't, wasn't objects kind of dreamed into existence by the people? And if the people weren't somehow... Is that right? Yeah, the... Um, I was just looking over that story, so it's, it's, it's more fresh in my mind, but the um, it's a it's an imaginary world to start with, um, so he he comes huh. across it in some, some I forget exactly but some just obscure reference to this place called uh, uh, Akbar, this land of Akbar, and he's looking into it more, and then he finds that there's this whole encyclopedia of this this whole imaginary planet called Talon, 
And then, then they find out that this whole thing was created by this uh, international secret society on Earth through several generations. Um, yeah. And it was started by, this is, this is the weird part, it was started by this um, Andr, uh, how do you say it, Andrele or something? He's a, and he's a historical character and he's um, usually uh, pointed to as the guy who started the kind of Rosicrucian um, scandal or scam or, or hoax, you know, um, the whole the whole Rosicrucian uh, movement in the uh, 1600s. Um, and so it was the same, the same secret society, basically, that, that started this, this uh, fake world called Talon. And in this fake world called Talon, um, everybody has an idealist philosophy. So everybody thinks that <laughs> mind is more prevalent than matter. So um, he, he, Borges starts that section by saying, he's talking about uh, David Hume and, uh, and Barclay. And he's saying that uh, David Hume said that uh, Bishop Bar Barclay, the philosopher's idea, ideas on idealism are, uh, there's no way to refute them, but no one's going to believe them. And he said on Talon, that's exactly the opposite. Like <laughs> every, uh, everybody believes that the idealistic um, philosophy and all these different uh, all these different sects and orders it's it's the most realistic philosophy out there um, so in on Talon um, to get back what you're saying about language um, they don't have nouns because nouns are things that would exist as matter so nouns don't exist they're only verbs right and so instead of saying something like the moon you would say the mooning <laughs> or <laughs> so you, you, you change it. Everything would be a, uh, everything would be a verb with a, with either a prefix or suffix that, that made it into an adverb or, or, or something else, you know? Um, so nouns, nouns themselves don't exist because every, everything's in, everything's fluid. Everything, uh, everything flows into every other thing. And ultimately everything's, uh, um, an idea. Um, not physical matter. And just to say, I want to read a quote from that story. This is one of the ones that I thought was quite potent. It's a short quote, but the metaphysicians of Talon are not looking for truth, nor even for an approximation of it. They are after a kind of amazement. And so, yeah. and then there's, there's, a, there's many different languages, I, I believe. Like one of them, there's no nouns. Another one is that they have nouns, but they're all... There was one language where there was famous poems made up of just one enormous word. Yeah, um, and that, that idea and comes through. So, yeah, this idea that there's these kind of wild languages that exist that are so radically different from anything I've ever come across, it just it just opened me up. It just opened me up. Um, yeah, wow. And then, then they talk about uh, time, too, which is, this goes right back to the uh, Nabokov stuff. It, it says... One of the schools of philosophy on Talon goes so far to deny the existence of time. It argues that the present is undefined and indefinite. The future has no reality except as present hope, and the past has no reality except as present recollection. Another, <laughs> school, another school posits that all time has already passed, so that our life is but the crepuscular memory or crepuscular reflection 
doubtlessly distorted and, and mutilated of an, irre uh, an irrevocable process. Yet another claims that the history of the universe and in it our lives and every faintest detail of our lives is the handwriting of a subordinate god trying to communicate with a demon. <laughs> yeah, so it's the same. Like you're saying about languages, it, it, there's so many different philosophies on this, like variations on this this theme. But that that first part about uh, time, it's it's almost exactly what um, uh, Nabokov was saying in uh, in the texture of time in uh, Ada. Where do you think they were getting that from? Do you think they were all finding that? Maybe it's a secret society that goes back. <laughs> 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 um, I, I know they were reading W. Dunn. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, Borges is really influenced by the, uh, um, the Arabian Nights. That's one hmm. of his, his key texts is the Arabian Nights. Yeah. The Garden. The Garden yeah. of Forking Paths makes a direct reference to that. And that's one that I think, Doug, you had sent an email out about and Dennis has read, um, you know, and that's one. <clears throat> I, anyhow, just one that I had gone in deeper on as well. But there's a reference in that, I guess, in the Arabian Nights at, at one point, one of the characters starts retelling, saying, I'm going to tell you now the story of the Arabian Nights so that you could theoretically start the book again from that point and you would have a circular loop. There's something mm. there's something interesting about yeah this this idea of infinity that itself is like bounded where so it's it's like that Zeno's paradox again where within within a finite space you have an infinity because if you keep telling this it, it's like Russian dolls you start telling this tale within this tale within this tale yeah, I, I um. That's I kind this... of embedded in the symbol that is the infinity sign because it is a closed loop. So, I mean, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Zenora. Sorry. Yeah. Um, no, it's just I, I uh, on YouTube. There's a clip of Borges doing a lecture on uh, choice, and oh. he and he talks about uh, Ulysses, um, and he's saying. He's saying how Joyce originally wanted to include Ulysses as the, the kind of final story of, uh, or, or what became Ulysses as the, as the kind of final story of uh, the Dubliners, which is his book of short stories. And so uh, this final story is just going to be the, on the life of, uh, of Bloom. Um, and, uh, but then as he was getting into it, uh, as he was writing it, he realized it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so finally, um, Borges described Ulysses as that kind of a labyrinth, right? Mm. And, and one, of the, one of the short stories, I forget which, which one, one it is. Which one it is? Which one? It's, uh... um, where he, he describes the, the simplest labyrinth is the straight line, like the paradox that you're talking about, Doug. That might be the Garden of Forking Paths, isn't it? Because isn't it, so Sweet Pin's relative... Uh, yeah, that's went off to make this the the greatest labyrinth of all time but he also was a novelist and the novel was beneath him and so but like the novel was it had it for some reason reminded me of uh crying a lot 49 but anyway you know, <laughs> <laughs> there was it it was like 
characters would be alive, and then in the next section they yeah. were dead, and then uh, because the the novel itself was the labyrinth, but it was this this is the texture of time. It was the block universe where all the forking paths are are there. Yeah, yeah. You've got a um, just just to say this is the one that reminded me of the um, um, man in the high castle which I know is one we've done yeah. because it's got this Asian crossover feel and this sense of kind of time bending and these sort of inevitabilities um, amongst the characters. Um, but this opening line from that, uh, he says that um, he knew an Englishman, a modest man, who for me is as great as Goethe. I, I did not speak with him for more than an hour, but during that time he was Goethe. Mm. And so this is an idea that's over and over again in almost every story that men can be different men. I mean, literally the same man can, like I could become someone else at a different time and then be something different. I mean, I think the, the little thing you read at the beginning, Doug, about the two Borgies is kind of emblematic of that, that there's, you know, like that the, the ontology, the selfhood of individuals is something that isn't fixed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, I think, pretty, you know, at cutting edge, and, you know, they talk about magic realism, but I find this more of like plausible, plausible, you know, <laughs> but there's more of a plausibility with some of this stuff, uh, from, from my view. And it's more of kind of an occult sort of, if some of it feels, um, like he's describing reality in a way. Yeah. Whereas magic realism is more, I feel like, you know, chimeras and just oddities that don't seem as realistic. But when you start talking about perceptions of time and language and identity, these things feel more tangible to me. But like the, did you guys read the, the knife fighter stories where it was actually the knives themselves that were imbuing the fighters with the, like the, I don't know. There, there's something. Yeah, yeah. That's, he, um... There's something about him and talismans too, because like I, for whatever reason, the Zahir really spoke to me about, and that was this object that kind of. It was like the, it's almost like I want to say, uh, Indra's net. Like there's his olive and the Zahir are like this, this point that reflects all the points somehow. The Zahir is the object you can never forget. You know, you get you become obsessed with it. It's like the it, it's it's almost like the ring in in Tolkien. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those two together, like yeah, there's these all these sort of magical items like the uh, um, in one of his stories it's not in that collection it's it's I think it's it's called the book of sand or something and uh, and the thing is when you open it and you try to find the you try to find the front or the back of it the pages just keep expanding like like sands on a beach mm. or something there's um, innumerable pages so you can never get to the front of the book and you can never get to the back of the book so it's a it's an infinite book um, but it just it it makes you go crazy um, trying to uh, trying to find out what it what it means um, yeah the library of Babel has a similar theme where people go insane searching for books that <laughs> are you know um, logically do exist but you can never find because there's so such an infinitesimal uh, likelihood. Uh, and so this idea of insane, I think there is, a, yeah, this idea of going insane uh, when these are, it, it can be dis, dis, uh, dislodging to read this stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, um, 
for the reasons we've already discussed, but you know, if language um, is more loose, if our reality is, is um, w way more loose than maybe we're taught in school or that the consensus reality would instruct, that can be a dangerous place, I think, psychologically. Um, Mm. Uh, so, yeah, he's yeah. he's pl he's playing with any any sense of uh, things being fixed or there being any any laws to the universe at all, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, another another sort of comparison is uh, is with is with Lovecraft, too, right? Um, like all these characters in in Lovecraft who find this mysterious thing and they can never really know for sure if it's if it's real or not real and they end up losing their minds um and uh one of his short stories one of the later ones after this collection he actually uh um he dedicates to lovecraft so he was a he was a reader of lovecraft also interesting i wonder i wonder if he read like these, like Robert Louis Stevenson in translation, or if if he uh, no, you know what he was an academic, so um, I think he spoke a number of languages. I know that he spoke German, German, yeah. and uh, he spoke in English too, like English, he, Spanish, yeah, Portuguese maybe. He, yeah, well, I think, I think we definitely have read, uh, maybe not at the beginning. It sounds like with Stevenson is another. Uh, Another one of his uh, his his canon set of books, you know. Um, so probably he read Stevenson in Spanish first, but he would have read it in English also because he uh, he praises English too and how um, expansive it is. You know. Parallel to this, I was re I've been researching this artist who um, uh, fled um, Germany to. Pre-Prussian um, War and, and ended up in Argentina, and it's just funny because we're describing a, a location where there probably would have been some really interesting thinkers in Argentina, given the sort of displacement of Europe that was occurring. Um, yeah, um, Dennis, have what you, you heard of? Have you ever heard of an artist called uh, Zul Solar? I don't know how to say it. It looks like. It, the first name is X-U-L, which is kind of Lux backward, backwards or light backwards, and then Solar. Whoa. <laughs> um, but <laughs> no, he, he, I don't. He, was a, uh, he was a friend of uh, Borges, like in that okay. same circle that you're talking about, all these weirdos in Argentina at that time. Um, but you can check out, you can check out his, uh, his paintings online, and they're really, they're really kind of amazing. I'll look um, it up, yeah. Awesome. It's, but uh, um, he's referred to in one of these stories, at least one of them, which I was just looking at. But I, yeah, it's so hard, it's so easy to get all of these things mixed up. Um, but well, Yodorowsky. Uh, I just gonna hmm? say Yodorowsky. I mean, there were his family. I know it's oh, Chile, yeah, yeah. but yeah. but uh, that region had a lot of interesting uh, thinkers, and I think there. I don't know about Borges's. Uh, religion or ethnicity, but I mean, there's clearly a, a Hebraic, um, a mass, some level of mastery of uh, Judaism and you know Hebraic, Hebraic tradition. Like the language in the Library of Babel has 22 letters, right? And mm. then there's three other: the uh, period, comma, and space as well. Yeah, he's that into, all books he's, are composed of. So 
he's into capitalism, he's into uh, he's into Islamic mysticism like Sufism, and he's into uh, astrology, absolutely, astrology, which are yeah, all, key to all, all these things. Yeah. Um, um, Gnosticism for sure yeah. as well. I've heard, Lacey, do you have any kind of broad thoughts? I've heard you kind of try and chime in every now and again. You probably muted us out. Oh, there I go. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> and then I couldn't unmute it. Um, I when, So I picked up, before I started reading um, the short stories, I picked up a book of his poetry. And I didn't actually get into it, but I read the introduction. And um, one of the broad things that I was thinking about while reading the short stories was him watching his dad go blind. Um, oh, wow as an as an adult and then he did as well so he watched this mm. process of um you know your vision you feel is something you'll always have and um and then to come to realize to watch your parent you know no longer have that and what they go through and going into the darkness um and then for him to have the same um disease and to go through that same process his dad has. And I don't know, like, when he started to lose his sight and where that um, corresponds to his writing. But I'm really fascinated with that part, too, because he has these stories that with these broad topics that you've been talking about of, like, things not being fixed and that how everything is infinite and um, ever-changing. So that's something mm. that... I've kind yeah. of taken through reading the short stories that I read. Yeah, it's that point's interesting. He had um, he had this. I, I'm just looking up this uh, chronology of uh, of his life. Um, but in 1938, he suffered this head wound, and he got uh, septicemia, right? Which I guess is some sort of I'm not exactly sure. I think it's some sort of blood infection or something, but it uh, um, it made him have all these visions, right? And so that happened in '38, and then he he comes out with the Garden of Forking Paths, um, the the book, and then also uh, Artifices, which those two sets of stories make up ficciones, and so his. Um, his style of writing really changed at that at that point, um, and I think it was because of these these kind of visionary experiences that he had after having this head wound and illness. If I'm not mistaken, I think he suffered that head wound. He was going up a flight of stairs, but he was at that time losing his vision, and he went through a plate glass window. Oh wow! And so maybe it was lead leaded glass. I don't know. But for whatever oh. in the bio that I was into, they were they were attributing that that uh, poisoning to going through this. I think I mean he didn't go out the window, but he went through the window. The other interesting thing about him is that he had uh, he had a strange relationship with his mother. Uh, like he lived with her <laughs> into his sixties, I think. And he was a virgin well into his, like, 40s. I don't think he got married until he was 60, maybe 68. Mm. He had platonic women friends. But, I mean, he, he kind of existed in this, in that imaginary realm. 
He worked at the library uh, of Buenos Aires, right? So he had a, maybe some professional wow. obligations that were quite extensive. And um, I mean, I don't know. I, that's a guess. I, I haven't read a biography, but I know that he was in charge of this library, this massive library. Uh, um, uh, and that, I mean, so maybe he, I, you know, as a writer, these writers can often just go into their caves. <laughs> um, so anyhow, that, not to, you know, that is, that is a little odd. I'm wondering if he had any kids at a later stage or if that was just off the table. Um, I don't think he did. I think he, his wife was his companion for a long time and he married her. Um, towards the end of his life, I'm pretty sure. Lead, lead, lead poisoning and lead in the pencil. (laughs) 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 Well, I want to make a, just a pivot here. One thing I, I noticed, um, is this, this Kubrickian, um, You know, um, and the influence on Kubrick, let's say, because let's presuppose Kubrick read Borges, but Borges, but you have chess is a big theme. Many stories reference chess. Mm-hmm. Um, the actually the Library of Babel. There's 32 um, books per shelf, I think. So that's 64 divided by two. 64 being the number of the I Ching and the, and the squares on a chessboard. But you also have so the, in the story about the Babylon lottery, this notion of the company. This kind of this energy that's kind of responsible for the lottery, and right. I just I keep thinking of um, of um, uh, the Shining and this idea of getting a contract and working for the company. I don't yeah. know the company, but there's also I thought of the Shining when you talk about books of random letters that you know maybe he's writing one of the books in that library of Babylon uh, MCV all work and no play. yeah MCV repeated over and over again or all work and no play makes jack a doll boy you know that mm-hmm. would be one of the books in the library but of course you have a labyrinth in the final climax of the shining and then the set is also some people have noted is very labyrinthian because you it turns to corners that don't exist and so anyhow i just think there's there, there there's some kubrick to be found here as well yeah. SJ, you, you just mentioned it, but did you crunch the, what did, how did you crunch the numbers? What was it? Um, so the dimensions in the story, there's laid out dimensions where you have these hexagrams that yeah. are uh, pods in the shape of a hexagram that are basically infinite. And each pod contains the set number of shelves and the set five number of Five shelves, so, 10, what was it? I think it's I 32. Uh, I can't get it up here, actually. Let me let me get the exact thing up and we can yeah. read it. But um, one of the, the constraints is uh, 32 books per shelf, I think, is what it is. And then each page has 40 words. That's also yeah. a a big theme with like 40 days and 40 nights. I think 40 comes up in other places. And then so, so many letters per page. Yeah, here it is. It's uh, 20 bookshelves, five to each side, line four of the hexagon, six, uh, line four of the hexagon, six side. The height of the bookshelves, four to a ceiling, is hardly greater than the height of a normal librarian. Um, but uh, yeah, he gets into it more later right on as well, yeah. Well, I I liked just the foolishness of that story where you have some groups that are destroying books because they think they're rubbish, and then 
other people thinking, oh, we lost all this great wealth of information, but knowing that because everything's infinite, that those books that are lost are potentially in other books elsewhere. Yeah. And that there's a master book, if you can just find the master. Yeah. The, the catalog of catalogs. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. But, but there's that other story. I don't know if you read that one. Uh, um, I guess you did because it's in the same same collection, The Approach to Al-Mutasim, right? Where he's um, he's trying to find he's trying to find the master. Um, like he sees this, this note of splendor um, this kind of radiance in some guy's uh, face that he meets on top of a roof. And this guy is like, uh, he steals the gold coins from dead bodies who are placed on the roof for a sky burial, like a Zoroastrian bodies. Anyway, so he, but he sees this kind of radiance in the guy's face and then he's, where is that coming from? And so he tries to trace this radiance through all these people that that guy connected with and and uh, sort of a uh, um, more shiny radiance on, a, on, a, on a, another guy's face or another woman's face all the way through to trying to find the, the master where this uh, emanates from and uh, so it's the same same kind of search for the the uh, the catalog of catalogs the master book um, but that's a uh -huh. it's amazing idea I just quick, I just found it here. Um, just sorry, it's no real quick. It's five shelves correspond to each one of the walls of the hexagram, and then each shelf contains 32 books of a uniform format. So that's where the 32 comes from. Um, but yeah, that story, I don't remember that. Uh, that's one I, I've read, but I, I didn't go back to it. Um, but it's, yeah. I, I think this idea of searching for something certainly is a is a theme across these stories where by the end often the stories arc like the, the the lottery of Babylon first it just kind of sounds simple but then he goes into the ideas with such a depth that by the end and even the garden of forking paths by the end it's this grand metaphysical kind of stroke where it's not simply a guy evading a spy or evading an officer. It becomes this kind of piercing into the nature of time and reality, you know? Um, and so I find that the arc of the narrative arc of the stories, there's really a, mas a master mastery by Borges. You know, it's like you get into a, a car and you have no idea where you're going. And by the end, you know, it's a whole um, profound, uh, you know, idea idea that was conveyed yeah often it's the very last paragraph that sort of sparks everything like it you know, just it, it all culminates right at the end well with especially with the garden of forking past there's all these moving pieces and you have no idea what's going on with that one until because they're they're it seems like you kind of enter into this thing and there's a lot of action that you're really you're vaguely aware of. Okay, so you know, we've got spies and there it's World War 1 and you know all this stuff is going on. And then wait, is it World War 1? No, maybe it's World War 2. Anyway, <laughs> I think it's World War 1, yeah. 1916 wasn't that at the beginning you that read was it was at like the beginning, an... but then they were talking about some kind of allied thing, but I I don't know. Anyway, but it's like all all these different elements to arrive at that. So like there is, um, you know, so that the the plot payoff is 
that with this murder, he's able to needs to to the German high command or whatever. And so like as a, like just the nuts and bolts, you know, that was kind of a payoff. But then there's also this allusion to this idea that these two people are connected throughout time and that this this goes on and on. It's almost like this, you know, this never ending thing. The next time I kill you, blah, 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 you know, mm. like I don't know if it said that or if that was just something I inferred, but it really felt like that we're caught in these these cycles, you know, and this is just one iteration of something that goes on and on and on and on. That sure does feel pertinent <laughs> lately. With the Baron Trump uh, not a comic book. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen that. Just just a quick aside. People can research this, listeners, if they want. There's apparently a comic book that talks about the young adventures of Baron Trump from like 1900. And it references, I think, the president. It's some strange things. And then there's the, the little the, um, TV episode with a man named Trump that wants to build a wall. And he tries to trick a town. And he's this villain. So... Anyhow, definitely very crazy wow. in terms of this idea of time and things repeating and, uh, you know, WTF, this sense of WTF. You well, know? It, it's interesting because I had a, a recent conversation with Alan and Will at the same time, but uh, it it's hard. It's it's interesting because they're part one of the concepts in this this kind of realm that we're dealing with is this idea of the block universe where it's almost like the block universe is your personal uh garden garden of forking paths you know so like you're able to see your decisions and so it's just instead of all the forking paths it's just your trajectory through time or through Mm. you know so but that doesn't mean that like there's this weird dance between it's not like fatalism, you know, like even though, even though, so like one of the, and this comes out of this book that I read called time loops where some of this stuff could be precognitive things where like people are sensing this thing that's going to happen in their future and they're responding to it and it seems like what they're doing is making the thing happen, but they're not, you know, it's not like there's destiny because (laughs) I I don't know how to, to say that out loud. You know, it's like, it alters it too, you know? So yeah. The the idea, I think it it comes in Ada as well. Right. Um, I think, I think we talked about this too, but, uh, um, the idea, at least, was how how many nights are there where we actually die in our sleep, but we choose or somehow we're not in that timeline. Um, yeah. That timeline exists on another. And so any. So it's weird. So it's, it's not as if we choose it. It's it's just that is the timeline that we of necessity have to be in because we're alive. Um. You 
brought up Ada again, and so that just reminds me of that notion of the radical now, where you have yeah. both the past and the future that are kind of feeding into this luminous like moment, and, and that's what he's trying to convey with the fiction. It's getting late for you guys, isn't it? It is. We could call that 42 minutes and say... Uh, boy, I don't even have this. You've been listening to... That was the... way more than 42 minutes. I know, I was waiting the whole time for Doug. that. 42 minutes. Why don't cut it off anymore? <laughs> for more information about the Sync Book, our guests can check out past shows. Subscribe to the podcast for you. Please be sure and visit the website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others as currently all all the Sigma Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help find you what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. If compelled, click on the support link at the bottom of the homepage. Thanks so much. And it's a lab- uh, it's a laborious madness, an impoverishing one, the madness of composing vast books. Setting out in 500 pages, an idea that can be perfectly related orally in five minutes. The better way to go about it is to pretend that those books already exist and offer a summary, a commentary on them. That was Carlyle's procedure in Sarto Resartus, Butler's In the Fair Heaven. Though those works suffer under the imperfection that they themselves are books and not a whit less tautological than the others, a more reasonable, more inept, and more lazy man, I have chosen to write notes on imaginary books. They're gonna put me in the movies. They're gonna make the star out of me We'll make a film about a man that's sad and lonely And all I gotta do is act naturally Well I'll bet you I'm a gonna be a big star Might win an Oscar You can't never tell The movie's gonna make me a big star Cause I can play the part so well Well, I hope you come to see me in the movies Then I know that you will plainly see Biggest fool that's ever hit the big time And all I gotta do is act naturally A man that's sad and lonely And baking down upon his bended knee I'll play the part But I won't need rehearsing All I'll have to do is act naturally Well, I'll bet you I'm a gonna be a big star Might win an Oscar You can't never tell Movie's gonna make me a big star Cause I can play the part so well Well, I hope you come see me in the movie But then I know that you will plainly see 
biggest fools ever hit the big time And all I gotta do is act naturally 